0: From the team behind the award-winning documentary She, welcome to She Goes by Jane. I'm your host, author, and poet Amy Baker. And I'm Vanessa Ciccarelli, photographer and
1: independent filmmaker. At the end of this episode and every episode, we will be joined by a special guest who will read an original poem by Amy Baker about the women we're featuring. This episode features award-winning author Louise Penny.
0: Hi, Vanessa. Hi, Amy. Hi, Amy. And hi, everyone listening. So today, Vanessa, we are going to talk about a case that involves something that I think a lot of people don't think about when it comes to unidentified persons. And that's when the person that is found is still alive. What? That's not possible. 100% possible. So that's the case that we're talking about today is a living unidentified person's case.
1: Yeah, so... We'll have to talk about it for me to understand what you're even talking about right now.
0: (laughs) (laughs) For this story, we are going to Hawaii, and it's May 6th, 2004. Okay. And in Ala Moana Park, which kind of stretches from like around the Waikiki area to downtown Honolulu, in this park is a homeless woman who is seems to be living in the park okay so police are called in because she's unhoused and she seems to need care so it's she's an elderly woman and she seems to be pretty weak and needs some assistance so she is taken in and eventually transferred to a state hospital in leeway 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 is that one word it is one word okay to get care. Okay. So she was living in the
1: park and now she's been brought to Lihue to get care. Yes. Okay.
0: She is clearly exhibiting some signs of what might be dementia. It's also mentioned that she might have schizophrenia. She has no identification on her and is not able to identify herself. Okay. She alternately in her time of care refers to herself as uh. It's A H pronounced like uh or pansy but when hospital workers look to see if there's any kind of matches name-wise that they can match up to her they are unsuccessful
1: so those could be a nickname of some sort or something else
0: right or or something else entirely you know there's like very few details about her so the specifics that we know and kind of the story of her is going to end rather abruptly You know, she's a white woman. She's believed to be between the ages of 55 and 65 when she was found. She's 5'7", 112 pounds, gray hair, hazel eyes. At the time she was found, she doesn't have any teeth. She's a smoker and an avid reader. Sometimes she spoke with an accent, which some places call it an undetermined accent. And you're going to appreciate this one, Vanessa. Sometimes they say it's an English-Canadian accent. Oh, yeah. (laughs) Yeah.
1: I do appreciate that.
0: (laughs) (laughs) She sounds like you.
1: (laughs) She sounds like me, but considerably taller. Considerably taller.
0: Yes. Through sort of their investigation, they're able to determine that she'd been in Hawaii probably since around 1994. So she's found in 2004. So a good stretch of time that she'd been living in Hawaii, but still they were not able to identify her. There's some rumors, there's some belief that maybe she was abandoned by family because of her health issues, but there's just really no, no saying because they don't know anything about her. Right. She stayed in the state facility until she passed away on April 27th, 2013. So, how long was she in that? That's nine years.
1: Nine years. Yeah. And we don't know who she is for that whole nine years? No. Wow. Right. That's incredible.
0: Yeah, and so this is like one story that I really want to amplify her story because I think it's important. We also don't know much about her, but I just thought this was a good opportunity to also talk about unidentified persons who are alive and what might have happened to them.
1: Right, it's something we don't really think about at all. Mm-hmm. I haven't until now. Like many things we talk about on here, I haven't thought about it before. Um, but like what kind of life does that mean for somebody like her? Like that nine years, what did she do? Was she in like a a facility or do does, is there like assisted living for her? Like what is she doing in all that time? Just curiosity. I know it probably doesn't have anything to do with the case, but just me.
0: So it doesn't say specifically or her case, but we know she was in like state care. Uh, which, you know, is not untypical of someone who who needs or whose family needs extra help and assistance for someone who is experiencing dementia or a more complicated case, which includes schizophrenia. So she was taken care of that, that entire time, but just without clear identity.
1: Okay. I hope she had a good life.
0: So I wanted to, like, talk about sort of these broader issues, you know highlighting her case but talking about what happens with these individuals who are found who don't have identities Uh, because it's not something that we
1: it's not something we think about and it can't can't be that common, right?
0: Well, okay. So the first thing I did was I was like, I'm going to check the NamUs, the National Missing and Identified Person System database to see like what's going on there. And I, I found actually a really great quote, a spokesperson for them back in 2012, which they said there are dozens of men and women living without being identified. And they believe that there are more cases out there because hospitals and authorities don't really know what to do with them. So I was like, well, just how many? Right. How many does that mean? How many does that mean? How many does that mean? So I sort of took a look through their database and I found eight listed in the database, which seems like very small to me. That does. Five of them were women. Most that were listed in the database would be considered like elderly or medically fragile. And I just wanted to cover some of the women here just so that in case any of our listeners have any leads on any of these individuals, they might be able to provide some help. It's worth a try. Right. So there's an unidentified Hispanic woman ages 65 to 70 who was dropped off at a hospital in Houston on April 8th, 2023 by an unknown person. There's an unidentified Asian adult woman who fell in front of Our Lady of Mount Carmel and was transported to Jersey City Medical Center on December 31st, 2022. She had no identification on her. There's an unidentified white woman between the ages of 50 and 70 who may go by the name Christine and who was found in Ellis County, Oklahoma on August 12th, 2020. We tend not to cover children in this podcast, but there was an unidentified white infant who was found on a front porch of a trailer in Lomax, Illinois on November 29th, 2019. And an unidentified black woman found May 14th, 2018, between the ages of 40 and 60, was found May 14th, 2018. And may go by the name CJ Jesse and calls herself China Black. She's living in an adult foster care facility in Romulus, Michigan. Well, I hope they can find their people. Me too. But this whole thing made me curious, like, what happens when someone is unidentified and ends up in a hospital? So I found some statistics on an L.A. County hospital system. The amount of unidentified people who come in every year is about 1,200 individuals. That's a lot. Huge number, right? That's like, a lot. Yeah, especially because I just said, like, there's eight right. in the database. Right, eight
1: sounded so believable. Now this sounds a lot.
0: A lot. So what happens is a lot of people end up in a hospital who do not have any identification on them. Interestingly enough, for a lot of men, they come in presenting trauma response issues. So they've been in an accident of some sort. Okay. Women, it's more likely for them to enter unidentified because of a substance issue.
1: Okay. And do these people, like, once they start receiving treatment, do they end up knowing who they are?
0: There's a process, which okay. is interesting. So I will say, I want to add that a lot of people end up unidentified in hospital systems because they are bicyclists. So, oh no, wear your helmet, wear your helmet, stay safe, carry ID. Go in <laughs> a pack.
1: Well, bicycle group. A bicycle pack club. A bicycle club. Yes.
0: Yes. With helmets. With helmets. Please. Right. And bring your ID. ID.
1: Right. There's little pockets in those outfits. Aren't I know there? nothing about bicycling,
0: but I think there are
1: pockets in some of those shirts. Put your ID in it. Yes.
0: It will help immensely in the process. Yes. Aside from being cyclists, one of the key demographics for people who end up unidentified in the hospital are men under the age of 44. So are they, I don't know. Are they just like, what are they doing? I don't know. What kind of accidents are they having? Are they the bicyclists? Are they the bicyclists? Well, it says trauma response. That's all trauma response. Not all trauma response, but more likely to be trauma for men. Okay. Okay.
1: Well, I hope they get their memories back as they get treatment.
0: So what happens is that most often, and we're talking identification usually happens pretty quickly. So within 24 hours, but much more likely under 12 hours, they will end up self-identifying. So... They're able to provide identification for themselves or police services is able to provide identification or a family member comes looking for them or calling. Okay. So what happens when someone comes in, they don't have any identification or aren't able to identify themselves, is that hospital staff will start searching through their personal items.
1: Looking for that ID.
0: Yes. So they can look for IDs, they can look for anything, like an unlocked cell phone. So if your cell phone's unlocked, they can open it up and, like, look. If your cell phone is locked, that indicates a privacy concern.
1: Okay, there's probably, like, work badges and other things that can point them in the right direction, too. Right.
0: They even, like, will start to piece together, like, anything, like, receipts, little detritus things that you carry on you to help kind of give clues to who this person might be, where they might've come from. They'll also ask paramedics for details about the person or make notes of any tattoos or piercings or dental records in order to like start lining up. So if someone's not identified pretty quickly, they go to work trying to find an identification for this person. So of those 1,200 who come in per year in one hospital system- That's just
1: one hospital system.
0: Yes. From 2016 to 2018, only 10 John and Jane Doe's remained unidentified. And are those people that didn't live through their injuries? Some did die in the hospital. Others went on to nursing homes. There are also cases where a person is healthy enough to leave the hospital, but may not remember who they are. That sounds like a nightmare. Yes. So there's like a few cases and a few interesting stories out there of people who spend years searching for their identities when they've forgotten who they are. That's awful. But at most, we're talking a few days to find someone's identity. And so most of these cases are closed pretty quickly. Good. Some of the challenges, though, for identifying people is that patients do have the right to privacy. And guidelines can kind of complicate the identification process. Todd Matthews, who's a a speaker for the Doe Network, he says, there's a level of privacy that's expected. For example, a living person's dental records should never be available on a public database. If this person regains consciousness, people may find out that she has a serious medical condition or something else that's very private.
1: So it's like a fine line. Between protecting their, protecting their privacy, but also protecting them in the way of finding their identity.
0: Right. Once a person's deceased, like those rights to privacy are reduced. So it's particularly because they are a living, unidentified person that their right to privacy is still protected.
1: So what you're saying is it's actually easier for us to help them regain their identity if they pass away.
0: Potentially. Right. So, you know, there's this story and there's a great NPR article that we'll link to off of our website in which they cover a little bit about this story, but kind of illustrates how this works and how something might get more complicated than it needs to be. Okay. So this is very briefly. In 2016, there was a man who had Alzheimer's disease and was admitted to a New York hospital. And when he did, he was an unidentified patient and he was assigned a name called Trauma XXX. That's not a real name. No. Did they give him a real name too? They did not give him a real name. So he is listed oh, no. in the hospital systems as Trauma XXX.
1: Okay. We need to make like an organization to help
0: give identities to those without them. Like okay. actual, a name. Like an actual name. Yeah. Petition for names names so police and family members were looking for him and in fact had called the hospital several times and they were told he was not there because they were protecting the patient's privacy okay that seems ridiculous right this seems like absurd but this is
1: that's absurd if that happened to one of my parents i would be so angry
0: So a week goes by, and we're talking hundreds of people are looking for him. Family members, friends of family, friends, police officers. And finally, a doctor who worked at the hospital saw a news story about him on television and realized, like, he was in the hospital.
1: Thank goodness he was on the news story.
0: Right. And it makes you think about all the people who aren't. Right. So hospital officials finally tell this man's son that... It's because he had not called and explicitly asked for trauma XXX, that they were unable to connect them.
1: How would he know that? How would how on earth would he know that? Okay, so I take it back. I don't want the people without without an identity to be named. I want them to have, like, their picture in a little flip book. So when you arrive at the hospital, there could be, like, your person in there with a whole bunch of other people, like they do for, like, a police lineup. And then you have to pick your person. So at that point, you're not lying. Right. (laughs) Right? There's got to be a system that still protects the person, but makes it easier to find them.
2: Hello, this is Dr. Grande, the host of True Crime Psychology and Personality. On my podcast, I explore and explain the pathology behind some of the most horrendous crimes and those who commit them. We discuss topics like narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, and antisocial personality disorder from a scientifically-informed perspective. What is a narcissist? How do you spot a sociopath? What signs can you look for to protect yourself from these dangerous personalities? It's not just about the stories, but also the science and psychology behind them. So if you're interested in true crime or mental health, I'd encourage you to give my show a listen wherever you get podcasts. 3AM, the comedy-horror podcast that holds weekly gatherings around the campfire. Let me tell you what you're going to get. You're going to hear stories about demonic possessions, prison stabbings, skinwalkers, glitches in the Matrix, cult leaders, missing 411, night marchers, Operation Paperclip, Mesopotamian devil worship, and so many monsters it'll give Kanye West a runaway for his money. Pop and meme culture also aren't off topic. A camp where laughs and scares are constantly competing for first place. We're just a group of friends, trying to bust each other's balls Find the best stories and expand the circle in the process. 3 a.m., the comedy horror podcast, not for the faint or fragile of heart. Let's go.
0: What do HIPAA guidelines say? I don't know.
1: I don't know. We have to figure it out.
0: But this specific case of Trauma XXX and the hunt for him and his family looking for him, it prompted New York State to create a set of guidelines for hospital administrators who are receiving requests of missing persons from police or family members. So there is a guidebook that you, like, it goes step by step. Like, it's, are you a police officer? Who are you looking for? Or a family member is looking, what what kinds of information can re- be released? I guess it's a stop. Mm-hmm. I mean, the, the problem is, is like, if you think about it, if someone I knew, say you, were in the hospital, please don't end up in the hospital.
1: Okay. I'll try not to.
0: Right. If you were in the hospital and, like, I randomly showed up and started asking questions about you, I might be given health information or information about your condition that I don't have rights to, right? So it's just part of this patient protection, but like in what ways do we kind of take it too far?
1: Exactly. Where does it go too far? I think in a normal situation, maybe we can keep those things private, but once somebody is is out there without an identity, maybe we can loosen those up a little bit. Just, I think the most important part at that point is to get that person home.
0: Right. Some other issues that are presented with this are who exactly ends up paying for the care long-term for people like uh, who needed extra care. So our unidentified woman that we started talking about, who ends up paying for her stay in that? Like normally those kinds of things are submitted for insurance purposes. Who then is responsible for her care? If we don't know who she is, what kind of benefits she has, what kinds of insurance she might have etc.
1: So it's just going to be part of the state, right?
0: Well, so then what ends up happening, and again, this is like, it will vary from facility to facility and state to state, but most often they become what is known as charity cases because there aren't clear guidelines. So in 2006, Changes in Medicaid rules were strengthened and they required proof of citizenship, which means that John and Jane Doe's, who became state wards, might be unable to prove that they are eligible for aid.
1: That doesn't seem right. Right. It doesn't seem okay. And with the vast number of us who know who we are and are paying into these systems, you think that we could pay for the handful of people who need the help. Right. There's probably an excess of funds out there in certain parts that can be shifted to these people.
0: Yeah, and so if you think about it, they might not be eligible for health insurances. They can't necessarily pay for any rent or hospital fees. If they're able to leave the hospital, they might not be able to get driver's licenses or rentals because they don't have any identification. They might not be able to apply for jobs or unemployment benefits. So you just sort of enter in this world where you can't do many of the things just because you lack an identification.
1: So they're being punished for something they have no control over.
0: Exactly. Sometimes these individuals are seen as like a revenue loss, which is a really depressing way to look at people. But yeah. yeah, that's that what ends up what happening, which is partially why you know everyone works so hard to identify them as quickly as possible for all of those things. The other thing that happens is, and this is interesting to me, is there is a higher risk of reduced health care when someone is an unidentified living person. What does that mean? So there's the inability to access someone's medical records. Okay, right. So hospitals have the complete length slate when they're working with someone they don't know what any prior health conditions that they might have or medications or risk factors that person has so they have to establish that all from scratch
1: okay that's something I hadn't really thought about either and it makes perfect sense
0: and the other thing that happens is that there is also a higher risk of medical error or mistakes that happen with an unidentified person and yes that's partially because they are coming in without all that medical history but also there's been some interesting studies about higher risks to john and jane does based on not having clear names so like trauma xxx oh right right okay You know, and I don't know what happened in his case, but we're just using this as an example, comes in, is not given a real name, it doesn't have any clear identity, and what they've actually discovered is there's, like, a higher risk of mistakes being made or something else in the process of care because of that lack of, like, knowing who your patient is.
1: Right. So there's the lack of connection that they're dealing with, but then there's the lack of background. So, I mean, imagine if you had, like, a a life-threatening allergy, and now all of a sudden that medication or that food is given to you but you don't have those medical records that's
0: right or imagine okay so say so i had to math some math here vanessa which is not my specialty mathing math mathing math but if we have, like, 1,200 people come into a hospital system a year and they're unidentified, that works out to, like, roughly, like, three people a day or, like, 23
1: people in a week. What population size are we looking at? Sorry, I'm adding math.
0: You're adding math to the math. So remember okay. that hospital system that we talked yeah. about in L.A.?
1: Okay. Oh, okay. So in right. L.A., it's a, it's a larger...
0: Right. Okay. So, but so say three a day. Yeah. So, t- well, three a day, like, you have, like, 23 patients who are in some process of being unidentified. So maybe in a few hours, they'll be identified. Maybe it will take a few days. But imagine like the hospital just starts naming them like John Doe 1, John Doe 2, John Doe 3. And you're on a unit taking care of trauma patients.
1: It's too much.
0: It's much easier to mix up John Doe 1 and John Doe 3 than, you know.
1: If they just dubbed them like, this is Mike and that's Bob.
0: Right, if or, they like, clear names.
1: But then at the same time, you don't want to do that, I guess, because in most of those cases, you said that they get it back within, like, 24 hours. Right. So at that point, what do we do? Case numbers? Like, yeah, there's so no real good
0: solution. So if it's, like, case number 1, 2, X, B, and someone else is, you know, 1, 3, Y, Z – the chances of, like, a mistake being made in the process of their care because you have the wrong, unidentified person rises.
1: Okay. That makes sense.
0: Yeah. So all those factors that we don't really think about, right?
1: Right. And most of us will never have to think about, Mm -hmm. but we're thinking about it now.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think, like, as well, like, if we're thinking about, like, I'm just thinking about the person's family who, whoever trauma XXX was. Mm Mm-hmm. And them trying to find their loved one, right? Like, I think we also start thinking about, like, our loved ones or our elderly family members or our family members who bicycle, who we now know should be wearing their IDs. And helmets. And, and helmets.
1: Yes. No, it was a horrible situation for that patient's family. I couldn't imagine being in that. So.
0: Yeah. And. The other thing is, is that the story of Trauma XXX, the reason why he was finally reunited with his family is because someone saw a news story about his case. And what I want to say as well is, like, one of the reasons why we have not talked much explicitly about uh, or Pansy, or Honolulu Jane Doe, however we might want to identify her, is because there actually just wasn't a lot of coverage about her. I think that's the other thing like you expect that like something like that story of finding someone who doesn't have an identity in a beach park in hawaii would get some coverage like even just locally or something but one of the things as i continue sort of research about missing and unidentified women is how often there aren't big news stories about them so no one is going to see their story and make the connection
1: Right, right. And I think a lot of the time, we don't think of, like at the start of this, we don't think of Jane Doe as somebody alive. So when you're hearing Honolulu Jane Doe, the first thing that pops into my mind is somebody who's who's been found not alive. Right. So then when we start going into this space, it really does seem like there should be some sort of news coverage of this. And and if they said she had a Canadian accent, you think that would be branching over to maybe a news story in Canada at some point, too.
0: Right. And, you know, there just seems to be, like, there seemed to be very little coverage of her story from the start of when she was found on May 6th, 2004, up to her death in April 27th, 2013.
1: And now when somebody is alive like that and unidentified, will anybody keep trying to find that person's identity after they pass away? Or is it just going to be, like, closed case, like, we'll never know who she is?
0: Well, I guess it depends on how willing agencies are to hunt down their leads on them or even search for leads. So in her case, she was in care for nine years and no one seemed to come looking for her. So who are the interested parties who might care that her identity is finally known?
1: Right. They would have spoken up by now. I would hope. Now, when they looked at Honolulu Jane Doe, was there any, were there, I don't know how they do it, but would there be any evidence of her having had children in the past or anything like that that could point them towards more clues?
0: her records are very sparse. And so there's not a lot of indication of much else about her and what her specific life experiences might have been before she was found. You know, the other interesting thing is that with that one hospital system between two year span, they ended up with, would we say 12, 12 people who were unidentified after that time period and yet like the national database has only eight people in it so i would just hope that over time that hospitals and care facilities would actually realize that that is information that they can enter into the national database to hopefully get those individuals connected with their loved ones
1: so through that one hospital system there's been 12 since honolulu jando but in the national system there's only eight total So we know that the number on the national system is way, way, way less than the reality of it when you're going across all the hospital systems.
0: Yeah, so, you know... So
1: those numbers aren't being reported to Those numbers
0: are not being reported.
1: That seems like a huge omission right there.
0: Yeah, and it's largely because I think that, you know, what normally happens is that someone who is unidentified and is no longer living, like that's a police investigative matter, and their cases get, hopefully logged into the database. I think there's still a huge gap there that needs to be worked on, but it's more likely they will be entered in the national database. And if you're a living person, it's not necessarily a criminal matter at all. And so then you have hospital systems and care facilities who might not know that that's a resource that could be used. So I think that the numbers are much greater than what's in that database now.
1: So now if I had a loved one that was missing, how would I access the database?
0: It's a public database, so you can go to the NamUs website and you can search through, like, different demographics and backgrounds and find cases.
1: Should we post that information on our website? We will post that
0: on our website.
1: So the hospital system we've been talking about was mainly the L.A. hospital system, which you said has, like, kind of a staggering number of unidentified people coming in each year. What what happens in, like, a smaller place, like— our tiny little local hospital, do we, are we seeing, how many are we seeing in a year?
0: So I'm unsure of say like our local numbers, but I can guarantee you that Every healthcare facility, like every emergency department is experiencing people who come in without any identification on them. So that could just be like they just weren't carrying anything on them when something happened, like an accident or drug use, etc. So there are... Plenty of of reasons it might happen. So again, most are resolved really quickly, like in a matter of hours. It's like these leftover cases, which are rarer. So if we have like 1,200 cases in this one hospital system and, you know, at the end, they're left with a handful, four or five people at the end of the year who aren't identified. So it's not like it's happening all the time, but sort of that initial unidentified person coming in because of a health issue or accident and then how do they find out who that person is. You know, there's, like, bigger cases, though, in which hospital systems will be flooded with patients. So, you know, for instance, the mass shooting that happened in Las Vegas, their hospital system was overloaded with people who had no identifications on them because they were at a concert, right? And so they were not necessarily carrying something or they dropped something as they are fleeing. And so suddenly you have, like, this huge influx of people into a hospital system all at once. So there's all these, like, Like scenarios that might happen where like this is a process that's happening. But it happens in every emergency room around the country. People are coming in without IDs on them.
1: So Amy, you've been mostly a person that like from my experience anyways has been writing your poetry more about missing and unidentified women that are for the most case no longer with us. What inspired you to um, think more deeply about Honolulu Jane Doe?
0: You know, sort of at the start of this episode when I asked you if you'd ever thought about this or I presented the unidentified living person and you were surprised, right? I had not necessarily thought through that happening. And so when I read her story and then I saw her photos, which again we'll include on our website, I was just really struck by one this sort of scenario and this happening and then to just sort of you know just looking at her face and thinking about what might have happened to her and where her loved ones might be and what I could do to amplify her story in some way in the hopes that like maybe that this is a case of just there wasn't enough coverage of her story that we might hear her story and someone might know who she is
1: Right, and and I was completely surprised at the beginning when you were telling me that we were talking about a living gene Doe at this point. It's not something we really stop and think about, but it is such a heartbreaking story at the same time. What kind of a life can continue after something like that? Like after you're found and and like you said, you're out in in the system now that doesn't necessarily have a spot for you.
0: Right, and I just think as well, like. You know, the park that she was found in, like 4 million people visit that park every year. There are people who are recreating there and holidaying there. And I just think of like as well, like how many people might have passed by her and not realized that she needed assistance and care and help.
1: Well, it's nice to draw attention to this
0: speaking of authors who you should read we're really thankful that this week's episode we got to feature louise penny reading my poem and vanessa and i would like to announce the start of our book club in the book club we're going to bring you exclusive patreon content where we read a book every month and talk about it and they're going to be a mix of thrillers and true crime books and louise penny's book still life is our first selection it's the first in her series of gamesh books
1: and that will be our October book.
0: That will be our October book. And I can't wait to dive in and read it and discuss it with Vanessa and hopefully all of you on our socials as we work our way through it.
1: Now we are going to listen to Amy's poem, A Painting of the Body, read by Louise Penny. Louise Penny is the number one New York Times and Globe and Mail best-selling author of the chief inspector Armand Gamache novels, which have been translated into 31 languages. She has won numerous awards, including a C.W.A. Dagger and the Agatha Award. And her books have recently been turned into the mystery television series Three Pines on Amazon Prime, which I recommend.
2: A Painting of the Body. Unidentified Woman, discovered May 4, 2004, in Honolulu, Hawaii. Died April 27, 2013. Why worry about the break of morning over the ocean when it is only the static hum of noise? Or remember a word that belonged at the birthing of my center, when it can be replaced by a syllable? If there is a crowding inside my brain that leaves a small hole for words to be forgotten, then my worn body that recalls years of kneeling in the sand now only needs to know the movement of love grass in the wind. If my mind doesn't know that the name of the park where my body is found means path to the sea, it also won't know it is a place to leave what is not needed. But in the end, what matters is that this space between flesh and thought is still life.
0: For more information about our show or to check out other shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. Bye, Vanessa. Bye, Amy. 24 hours ago, I found out the person I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister, Emma. Andrew Tonks' lies had been so convincing. She'd invested $300,000 with him.
2: That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right.
0: I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning
2: the Con. So when the scammer uses the hypnotic method of building rapport... Then they create dysfunctional, delusional reality. That's how a scam begins. Convincing the mark that it makes perfect sense to hand over their money to a con artist. The Scams and Cons podcast tells you how scams are run. You'll hear how people are convinced to buy fake art, buy machines that print money, or steal your house. I get a phone call from my wife, and she let me know that they had decided to move all our stuff out. I could no longer do anything about it except go through an eviction and you'll hear it from the experts people who run the cons so we go to your bank you go in and get 6,000 cash give us each 3,000 we give you this Uh you go home and what you find out is cut up newspaper it's fun to know how the trick is done and that's what scams and cons is all about listen at scamsandcons.com or wherever fine podcasts are found